Welcome to Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. This episode, we're fortunate enough to talk to Dr. William Goldberg. His early beginnings were in rural Georgia, and throughout the episode, he describes a number of different career paths he's taken. He offers insight into the skills required, transparency demanded, and frustrations that physicians often face. Almost 20 years ago, he entered a different model of physician service, a concierge physician model that offered better quality of service for the patient and more family balance for the practitioner. We hope you enjoy this insightful discussion. Dr. Goldberg, welcome to CareerPod. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, uh, typically we start uh, these discussions uh, about, you know, family and early life. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your early life um, and what kind of influences uh, you had in your early career choice? Okay. Well, I grew up in a small town in rural Georgia, 5,000 people, and um, lived there my first 12 years. Town of 5,000, three traffic lights, and both my father... My father grew up there. His father moved there when he was a teenager or early 20s. And um, one of those places where everyone knew each other. And um, two restaurants in town, one hotel. And, um, you know, kind of a simple life. Okay. Now, how about what was your dad's occupation? He owned a furniture store. Okay. When my grandfather came from Belarus in 1914, he left. When he got to the States, he lived in New Jersey, hated it, and moved south because there was a a young woman there who was also Jewish. All right. That was inventive. Well, that's a... And for the first three or four years, he sold junk in a cart and saved his money, brought his family to the U.S., and then he opened a dry goods store. Hmm. And And that's what he did in the 20s and then in the early 30s. He and his first cousin expanded and started selling furniture. Okay. Now, what did you uh, what did you learn at the supper table? A lot of times, we we don't realize the influences uh, in our from our parents until later in life. But looking back, what what uh, what keys did you get from your parents? Yeah, no, that's a you know we ate supper together almost every night unless my parents went out. But, you know, we're pretty regimented eating dinner every night at 6, 30, 7 o'clock. And, um, yeah, that was our family time. And then later, you know, probably watched TV or did homework and read. Okay. Uh, how about the influences that led you to your career choice? Was it always going to be medicine or did you have a different path? And what made you uh, pursue your medical uh, career? Yeah, no, a very different path. I studied history and English in college, and I spent the bulk of my college working in, in music. I was very interested in jazz, am still interested in jazz music, and worked at the radio station for eight years, and, you know, produced shows and festivals and concerts, and worked as a stage manager and just did stuff in music. Hmm. So after graduating from college, I was freelancing friend of mine got very sick, so I took over his job as a stage manager at the Public Theater in New York. And then as I was doing this for three to six months, getting kind of frustrated because one week I would work 60, 70 hours, and the next week I would have 10 hours of work. So there was a 
halfway house, the block from my house that needed a counselor. And um, just so that I would have a steady income, I took that job. And I was working with schizophrenic and mentally ill people who were unable to live on their own. And I was what was called the floor manager. So there were 30, 40 residents on each floor and me and another counselor would just make sure people on the floor were getting to whatever programs or jobs or things they have and help them. They were all on disability and things like that. So I started that job actually. Now, how old Reagan years? Just quick question. How old were you then when you uh, left the, the theatrical area? I was 22. 22. Okay. And um, Reagan became was just become president, and he started cutting Social Security on disabled people. And there were 200 people in the residence, and about 120, 140 of them lost their monthly checks, which paid for their um, residency fee. Spent a lot of time at the Social Security with them, advocating for them as well. So that kind of was a calling. Uh, there's a big step from counseling and being an advocate to go into med school. Uh, what was the breakthrough there? Yeah. Well, I was working with a lot of other idealistic people in their twenties and you know, this is pre-marriage pre-children. So you have lots of evenings just <laughs> hanging out and talking about our futures. So a lot of the people who were there, you know, going to social work, psychology, medicine. And, um, I guess at some point, during the maybe the second year I was there, I decided, you know, I enjoyed working with people. Hmm. And um, I just felt, yeah, so I decided to go to medical school. Simply, I didn't really want to do kind of the master's PhD. I thought there'd be more choices at the end of the road right. with an MD. And, and where did you go to school? I went to college, undergrad at Columbia in New York. And then I went back to Columbia to do my chemistry and some of the pre-med. And then when I finished the pre-med, I went back to Georgia for medical school. And that was basically, well, it was $3,000 a year at the state school and forty or 50000 <laughs> well, at a private easy, school in New York. It's an and easy choice, you're in medical right? school, yeah. it didn't really matter where you are because you're in school. <laughs> well, on that point, if someone's looking at uh, a career, what weighting do you give to the uh, the educational environment? in making a good doctor or, or whatever. What, what thoughts do you have on that subject? Well, I mean, we live in Boston, which has, you know, Harvard, Tufts, you know, some of the U, some of the best medical schools on the planet. Um, my choice wasn't that hard because I got into the medical school in Georgia and then I got into another state school right. that was of the same. So it really was kind of a semi no brainer. Right. The other state school was no better. So, I mean, it certainly matters depending on what your career track is. You know, a lot of, you know, there is a lot of weight. If you, you know, go to Harvard or Yale as opposed to State School of Georgia or Florida. Right. I mean, you know the people I work with, and some of them just go back to the state schools. And some career-wise, you know, if you're kind of going more academic, you're better off going to those schools. Okay. At the time, I didn't, I didn't know. Now, you, you graduate uh, in, in Georgia. You're in Georgia physically. How about the choice of uh, where to go? You may have fallen in love with a woman, too, and that may have led you to a different part of the country, but what was your choice about leaving Georgia? 
Yeah, it was very easy. I didn't really like Georgia. Okay. And ordered my wife. Yeah. Um, so we were really focused on uh, Boston and New York. And as I visited places, there was just something. Um, and I had a, a, a young son at that time. And, you know, I lived in New York for eight years, so I love it. But at that juncture, kind of early 30s, it just seemed like an easier, simpler life to move to Boston. And then I got into a number of programs in Boston and one in New York, but the Brigham and Women's was the top kidney, kidney center in the world. So it was kind of, I chose the Brigham. Okay. All right. And uh, let's step back from your own experience and, and just maybe talk a little bit about the your observations about the skills, experiences, maybe the personality traits that you think uh, can lead to success uh, as a physician? Well, I think the most important part of a physician, um, there are two, two things that stand out. Obviously, the knowledge, which any professionals should have, yeah. you know, a fund of knowledge of their selected field. But I think the things in unique in medicine, you have to be a good listener, even if you're a surgeon, you know, taking out gallbladders, you know, there can be one little thing a person said. Well, you also, you know, the other part is just caring for the patient. Yeah. And um, everyone requires a level, different types of care. But, you know, the, I think the successful doctor has to understand it's just not me knowing what blood pressure pill Mr. Z needs or whether this person needs his foot operated on. Yeah, but kind of understand the person, the whole person. Okay. We took uh, my father-in-law to the doctor the other day, and there is pressure on a physician to come up with answers and fixes and approaches. And yet, I suspect uh, all doctors run into uh, I don't know is an answer, and the doctor we saw basically said, you know, I don't quite know what's going on. And he listed some possibilities, but most of us want clarity. We want direction. We want answers. And sometimes physicians uh, are faced with that reality that they don't know. I guess, how do you handle the the kind of vagaries of diagnosis sometimes? Uh, so if you just speak to that challenge, I guess. Yeah, actually, the man who just left and two people I saw yesterday afternoon, all three have conditions that are not curable. They're manageable. Yep. And, you know, they all three of them have their brains and understand the nature of the t condition that they have. And so helping people accept it is one thing because, you know, we're not perfect now and we're not going to be perfect. We're probably a little less perfect in a decade. Right. So I think you have to be transparent and honest. And so one part of them is telling them this condition is likely to get worse, but you're, there are ways that we can, you can adapt to it and impede the deterioration. Right. And then you have to, sometimes you have to say, you don't know. Yeah. I think, and I have to say that every day and, um, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, talking about, uh, day-to-day -day activities because part of what we're trying to do is uh, reveal what jobs are like. Uh, I think we all have seen enough medical dramas on TV that we we, we have our beliefs, but 
what's a, a, a life in a day of uh, Dr. Goldberg? What kind of things do you go through just briefly? Take me through the day. Yeah. Um, you know, some days start, I mean, it's going to start different every day. You know, I frequently get a message either from the answering service or the various messaging things on my phone and computer. So, you know, I mean, this morning there was a, a, a message on an emergency that needed to be taken care of. And, um, you know, one of my assistants that actually, before I even called about him, she had already taken care of it for him. Okay. It was semi-urgent because the person's going to Mexico on Monday yep. and needed some things taken care of to get there. Right. So, um, it's unpredictable. I mean, that's, it's a blessing and a curse blessing in the sense that it's always interesting and fast, but, um, you know, and towards the end of the week I go in later and I had two calls to make that were set up phone conferences with patients. And then, um, from 10 o'clock till now, okay, there'll be just, you know, two physicals today and which are extensive visits and then just some other follow-up visits. Of one or two issues, and then I think, yeah. Uh, how, about, how about the old area, the whole area of uh, continuing education? Uh, I think most lay people were amazed that any doctors can even barely stay current with the emerging, you know, uh, changes in medicine and drugs and uh, various treatments. Uh, how do you how do you do uh, that whole? Uh, activity of trying to stay current. No, I mean, I read the New England Journal and the Annals of Internal Medicine. Yeah. One is a weekly, one's a bi-monthly, so I read them, try to read them as cover to cover as they come in. I go to two conferences a year, just coming up this week, Wednesday to next Sunday, there'll be an endocrinology meeting here in Boston. And um, so, you know, I'll go there every morning at eight o'clock and you know, sit there as long as I can sit there, and then there'll probably won't be one or two patients to see or calls to make throughout the course of the day. So staying current in Boston is, I think, it's very easy. Okay. Um, and I also, you know, I teach for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons to teach is I learn a lot too. Since yeah. I have mostly an outpatient practice. Okay. And I, you know, a lot of my time is spent with healthy people. Right. And the folks in the hospital, as you know, have much more going on. So. Right. And in regards to your teaching, uh, um, one motive is to stay, you know, current. But what are some of the other drivers that led you to commit to teaching on a regular basis? Well, I think one of the most important things in a lot of professions is, you know, giving back and also remembering the professors who taught me. And I can still remember, you know, from the 80s and 90s, even my high school teachers, I remember the two or three right. who taught me things that are part of my daily, who I am. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do feel doctors have that responsibility to teach the next generation. Yeah, They're going to be taking care of me in 20 years, right? <laughs> right. Now, how about, uh, you know, you're ed edging into the discussion about role models and mentors that may have helped you along the way. Uh you can name names or not name names. Are there a couple that you could pick out that really have made a lasting impression on you? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I had two high school teachers who have nothing to do with um, medicine directly, but they both taught, helped me think and write. 
and broaden my idea. I had a ninth grade, unfortunately, one of the Latin teachers got sick and I had Miss McAuliffe, who was a scary woman with her purple hair, but I took Latin with her a year and I took two years of classics with her and, um, you know, understanding the classics, you know, I mean, it was my introduction to, I think, you know, the, you know, humanism and psychology and, and then I had another English teacher too, who, so Ms. McAuliffe and Ms. Sheftall were terrific. And then I think in the same way, I had two college professors who also helped me think and formulate opinions. And, you know, actually my philosophy teacher, I, one of the most important things he taught me was, you know, has had a great impact on enjoying making a diagnosis and thinking through problems and trying to be accurate because as you know, I mean, you know, someone has stomach pains. I have to think of five, six, eight things that right. could be the cause of the stomach pain. And as I hear the history, the evidence moves, you know, the meter towards one condition or the other. Okay. Uh, how about emerging technologies? There's uh, probably, well, it's one of the greatest area where, you, you know, as a patient, you go in and the machines have changed how nurses see you. They have these little, uh, like scooters, they're wheeling around now. Everything's on a laptop. Uh, uh, what are the biggest uh, technology changes that really have uh, impacted your job? Well, I mean, there's just so many. It's hard to start. I mean, I think... You know, when I started, there was no such thing as, of an, MR, as an MRI. Right. So, you you know, you're looking, someone has a terrible headache or a seizure, you know, you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants on some level. So we get answers very, very quickly because of whether it's a blood test, the diagnostic imaging, the ease with which you can get a biopsy of a tissue. You know, you see a spot on someone's lungs and 20, 30 years ago, you'd have to open up their chest Yeah. and um, they'd be in the hospital for three or four days with tube out of their chest and, you know, a lot of pain and a lot of complications and an infection from that tube. Now, you know, radiologists can put a little, take a little picture and sometimes you can get it with a needle. Yeah. So not always, but, you know. So the speed, and then, you know, that's just the tech, and then, you know, just the drugs, so probably 70, 80% of the drugs I prescribe now were not around when I started. Yeah. So that all, go, all goes to the, the quality of care and, and uh, the percentage and the minimal level of uh, adverse impact, so to speak. Uh, it gets into the whole subject of cost and benefit of uh, many treatments, but I guess if you end up healthier, uh, the individual patient isn't going to complain, but it does put weight on the systems, so to speak, uh, but that, that's kind of given. If, if you look at uh, uh, the mo you know, your job and, and as a physician and look at what are the satisfiers, what gives you pleasure, you mentioned before, a person going into the profession really has to have a caring personality, but uh, maybe expand on that or something else would strike you here. What's the most satisfying part of the job? I think I was always moving towards a profession 
where I felt like, you know, doing a service to my, to people was important. Um, and I'm very lucky because most of my, um, majority of my patients now I've known for over 20 years. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's a nice thing in internal medicine, you know, I mean, I'm a more of a, I'm a people person, so I enjoy getting to know people, and um, likewise, and I'm not afraid of them getting to know me. So I think that this helping them and um, is very important. Now, why don't I interject a, a comment here? You're a general practitioner, but your model of delivery is that of a concierge doctor. And uh, could you just elaborate for some people that don't know what that role is and uh, what the benefits are? Yeah, so the first 10 years in practice, I carried about 2,000, 3,000 patients. Right. So the average internist, <laughs> he or she's going to have a panel size over 2,000. So prior to 2004, I would see 20 or 30 people every day. I'd have 10 or 15 minutes with them. And, um, you know, I was working from 8 to 8 every single day. And as I was, you know, analyzing my situation, all I knew in the early 2000s was each year I was seeing more patients and making less money. And then I kind of knew what I was doing more. It just was, you know, it's not a, no other business model works that way. Right. You know, very few disincentivize you from seeing more customers right. and getting less. So um, the model was picking up in Boston, late 90s, early 2000s. And there was a group that was spent about a year recruiting me to join. And after flirting around with them for about a year, I finally sat down and, you know, basically talked Turkey. So right now I have roughly 340, 350 patients. And um, instead of seeing close to 30 a day, I usually see eight people. So nothing is rushed. I'm not behind. And, you know, I have a much more sane professional life but I have more time for my family and travel and other interests. Right. So you have more balance in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it, you can, you, I think you hinted at it before. Obviously doctors deal with problems, but on the other hand, there's a proactive role that doctors can play in more preventative things. Uh, and I guess the, if you have time to do that, and that's what your current role gives you, I think that would also, I assume, be very satisfying too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know. And actually, a man today, you know, who's a vegetarian, came in, and his cholesterol keeps going up and up and up, and he does eat a lot of cheese. And you know, just so even kind of having the time to kind of discuss exact foods that an individual has. I realized, well, you know, you know, cheese is not an animal per se, but it comes from an animal and has the same amount of fat. So, right. um, you know, I always like to tell the story about this model versus others. When I was talking to a, a colleague of mine about it, who's 20 years older than me and has been an advisor, he kind of said, you know, people are not going to be mad at you because you might make more money than them in the concierge model. They'll be mad at you because you'll have a little bit more balance in your life and you'll have a lot more time with your patients. Right. 
in, you know, if you're in the general practice before I moved to this model, I was, I've always been pretty good with time, but there would always be two or three people in the waiting room waiting. Yeah. And then there'd be five or 10 or 15 people to call. Right. I think right now I have one or two calls to make after work today. And in the old model, I would have one to two hours. Right of phone calls every night after my last patient left and sometimes more. And it, it is the, the macro solution, more doctors, more schools, more incentives, more support for uh, people entering the field. That's a hard question. I think, you know, it's all of the above. I mean, I do yeah. think, you know, it costs a lot of money to train people. Right. right. So even with these so many schools in this, in Boston, you know, there are limited resources, yep. especially funds, to train as many people as we can. Okay. And we certainly do have a shortage. And then geographically, you know, there's a lot of um, inequality yep. in practitioners, both in quantity and quality. And there are underserved environments like the rural uh, areas. Uh, that- <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. That's a real challenge. Well, how about uh, you've worked in a number of different environments, hospital settings and so forth, and again, not naming names or persons. Uh, any really tough, uh, you know, supervision or boss that you had? And we all have bosses, uh, although you're by and large self-employed, but earlier in your career. And what was so bad about that uh, management style or that supervisor? Um, well, the first seven years I was employed by a hospital, I've been independent for 20 years. And the main reason I'm independent is because even within a hospital group where I spent close to a decade, there were always new people coming in, reinventing the wheel. And I think that that was, um, very frustrating for me. And um, I joined the two doctors. I was the third one. And when we finished, there were seven of us. So I think like in any professional life, there's everyone has their personality quirks and their egos. So those that, so, um, you know, I learned from doctors and probably my parents, you know, I grew, you know that I wanted to be independent. I'm, I'm the boss and I'm going to make the mistakes. And, you know, it's easier to deal with the little falls that I have than some falls that someone else is making and imposing on me. You know, there was certain financial incentives to stay with the big hospital group because I got health insurance, I got generous retirement, but I think that extra money is worth it for my, you know, independence. Right. Uh, let's skip around a little bit. Uh, how about, uh, you know, what major lessons would you give to other, you know, budding or early stage physicians? Uh, any general uh, lessons you'd give them? You know, being in an academic setting for the most part, I, the, my mentees and students are really ambitious and really smart and are the cream of the crop. But I think, too, I recommend the importance of, you know, balance, going with their hearts about what they're doing, not just, I mean, really understanding why you make a choice and then just having the support, you know, having people you care about and love in your life. Um, 
there are certainly too many of us in professions who ambition is too prominent. You know. Yeah, uh, a couple of our discussions we've had, people have been very candid, and they've had excellence in their careers. But it comes with some regret as they look back that the there were weekends that they uh, missed birthday parties uh, because the adrenaline rush of their career was so great uh, that the travel demands took them away, and and they didn't have the balance that you. Uh, rightfully uh, refer to. Uh, any uh, differences that you would have, you know, made happen as you look back at your career? Anything you, w- you would have done differently? Um, I mean, I was older when I started medical school. Yeah. I could have waited another year or two. Some people, I guess, have the urgency to start. You can make a living anyway. I mean, you're not going to make money. Um, but you know, I think one of the things that I felt learned after I got out of training is that when you enter medical school and your internship and your residency and fellowship, you're like in a tunnel and you're just in that tunnel and that dominates everything and you're not outside of that world enough. So you miss a lot of stuff. And this is our prime, our 20s and 30s, you know. So I think that, you know, it's another difficult thing in this rigorous profession. There are too many things you miss. Yeah, and you you had uh, some exposure to uh, quite a little bit of diversity, whether you're a stage manager or your love of jazz. Uh, you were trained in the arts, so to speak, and and uh, uh, and then went in uh, to the profession, as you said, a little bit later than normal. Uh, so you had some balanced perspective, I guess, that helped you. But but I tell the students, you know, they have to find you know, the passion outside of medicine. I yep. mean, of course, we want friends and family and then relationships, but, you know, there's still other things. So, and as I encourage, yeah. I mean, even now in this part of my career, you know, I mean, there's a holiday event coming up that um, will be hard for me to go to. And it's not the end of the world, but, you know, um, that's a common theme in medicine. Yeah. Yeah, it while people cover for you, uh, your patients want you. That's fundamental to the relationship, and uh, anything but you is, by definition, second best. Um, so that presents some tension, I guess. Uh, how about uh, interesting, funny, exciting stories? We I've realized that we talk to people, and and just one degree away from their existence, their brother might be an astronaut, or they may have gone down the Amazon River, uh, they may have, may have met B.B. King when he was hot, and whatever. W- anything you could uh, relate to us uh, about a story? Well, actually, one of the men who just left played with um, Buddy Guy and B.B. King is, um, and he runs a print shop okay. now, but he's a musician. But um, no, there's stories I mean, I'm looking at my schedule yesterday. One guy was the producer of the Today Show for 20 years, and you can imagine his stories. And yeah, well, I think uh, the major takeaway I've got is the the importance for balance in all occupational groups, including doctors, that in some ways are driven in kind of a singular way to practice their profession. Uh, and I don't know if it's true, but 
they say one of the secrets uh, that studies have showed about having a, a long and healthy life is having a lot of uh, social interaction, being with people. And uh, so I think uh, sometimes doctors get a, a bad name because they they may be a good uh, mechanic, but they lack any bedside manners. And I think that comes to how their personalities develop. So it's just important. And I think keep, another thing yeah, to no. emphasize too, the stress of, we see a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. And so, you know, most jobs in the world, you know, are not dealing with, you know, death, pain, being maimed, all these horrible things. And you get used to it, but again, you know, it's still going to have an impact on you more differently than my friend who owns a restaurant. He has this stress, employees or bloods and things like that, but it's different. Well, it's been very helpful talking to you. Uh, hopefully this in some small way will create a flood of new doctors. They will heal many people and solve many problems. So thank you very much, Dr. Goldberg. You're welcome, Fred. Okay, my pleasure.